Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олиар. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. This episode is going to be a little different than the other episodes that I've done. Tomorrow, as we know, is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I was in New York City, was living in Astoria, Queens. My wife and I had just moved there a month before. And I was in Midtown Manhattan when the planes hit, when the towers fell. And every year that goes by, I try to do something to kind of mark the day, to honor the day, to remember the day, which I think is the most important thing, to commit it to memory. At the time that it happened, I lived in New York, as I said. Most of our friends lived in New York. Most of the people that we interacted with lived in New York. And therefore, it was was very much a shared experience. We all kind of went through and lived together. And now, 20 years later, I no longer live in the city. I live in the Hudson Valley. And most of the people in my life that I know were not in Manhattan on 9-11. Some people that I know weren't even alive on 9-11. So every year that goes by, I think it's more and more important to remember. And, and not, not the politics of it, not the Osama bin Laden and this and that, all the ugliness of it, but the, the actual day itself. What happened that day? What, what was it like to live through this event Um, This horrible, tragic event that, you know, completely changed history. So what I decided to do is reach out to Noel Kastler, who many of you probably know. He has a podcast, first of all, called the Noel Kastler Podcast, which uh, I'm going to play a clip of the of that for you before we get to the to the discussion that we have. He's a comedian and he worked for years um, doing events, you know, celebrity events. He worked on Celebrity Apprentice and he's been a big basically Trump truth teller 
mostly about Trump's um, his racism, his unfitness for office, his drug abuse, other things as well. He's been really brave and courageous and trying to get the truth out. He's also really funny and super smart and warm. And I didn't know what his story was. I know he's a New York guy. I know he was in, you know, he's living in New York on 9-11. So I, and I kind of wanted to have him on the podcast anyway, but I didn't want to ask him, tell us about the time Trump did Adderall. Cause I'm, you know, I, I don't want to, we know he did Adderall. Um, and he's got to be tired of, of, of telling that story also. But I was curious, okay, you know, what were Noel's experiences like? Um, how were they similar to mine? And, and maybe the two of us together could kind of walk through what we experienced and kind of set the scene and paint the picture for anybody listening who wasn't there or who, you know, has a different experience. I wanted to share my experience. I wanted to learn his experience. And so that's what we did. I had him on and, you know, we had a great talk. I think we covered most of the things that I wanted to cover in terms of, of recollections of the day. And I'm really grateful to him for coming on and sharing um, some of himself because this is, you know, the 9-11 stuff is hard. It, it, it brings up emotions that you have and, uh, you know, it was a, it was just a day unlike any other. So before we get going um, to the interview, I want to share one thing. One of the things that I did in the days that followed is I really paid attention to the newspapers and I clipped issues of magazines and columns that people were writing just to see how the the event impacted you know their worldview because there was a lot of uh, differing opinions at that time coming out after this it really did inform people in ways that maybe they wouldn't have been informed earlier of all the things that i read around that time in the days that followed 9-11 i think the one that stuck with me the most is something that the film critic of the new yorker named anthony lane who i love wrote and i want to read just the the last couple paragraphs of this piece which is called this is not a movie and the, that's kind of the topic of the piece he's obviously the film critic and he's talking about you know how movies and our training about how to watch a movie informed things that happened that day so this is the last section of that piece and i'm quoting anthony lane here this was written on, uh, it was published in the, in the September 24th issue, but it was written, I believe, on the 15th, four days later. This ruination was the opposite of invention of conjured worlds. Whether it will also signal in part a death of invention is more difficult to call. For instance, Warner Brothers has postponed the release of Collateral Damage, an Arnold Schwarzenegger picture in which a skyscraper is bombed. If Schwarzenegger wants to do the right thing, he would tell them to cut their losses and drop the movie, and thus inform moviegoers that the genre, and his own dominance within it, has officially come to a close. That the destruction of the World Trade Center might mean goodbye and good riddance to the blockbuster would be among the most trivial of its many effects, and yet it would somehow hit a national nerve. If the disaster movie is indeed to be shamed by disaster, we would do well to remember the exact moment of its defeat. It came, I think, when the cameras began to pick up moving dots in the steel grid of the towers, people waving for help that would never arrive. Was it just me, or did the networks back off of these long-lens shots and revert with something like relief to the wider view? Too late. The aesthetic habit had cracked. There was no going back. It shattered, finally, as the second tower fell and the spike at its summit sank down into the dust clouds, a perfect reversal of a rocket launch, 
in which the nose cone rises out of burning fuel towards the moon. If the liftoff of Apollo 11, essentially a controlled explosion in the cause of an adventurous peace, was the spectacle that first gave us leave to indulge in the joy of a Big Bang, then September 11th was not only an official rebuke to that license, but the fiery end of the ride. To be forced to disdain the ideal in favor of the actual is never a pleasant process. Even at its worst, however, it can deliver a bitter redemption. We gazed upwards, or at our TV screens, and we couldn't believe our eyes. But maybe our eyes had been lied to for long enough. Thousands died on September 11th, and they died for real. But thousands died together, and therefore, something lived. The most important, if distressing, images to emerge from those hours are not of the raging towers or of the vacuum where they once stood. It is the shots of people falling from the ledges, and in particular, of two people jumping in tandem. It is impossible to tell from the blur what age or sex these two are, nor does that matter. What matters is the one thing we can see for sure. They are falling hand in hand. Think of Philip Larkin's poem about the stone figures carved on an English tomb and the sharp, tender shock of noticing that they are holding hands. The final line of the poem has become a celebrated condolence, and last Tuesday, in uncounted ways, in final phone calls, in the joined hands of that couple, in circumstances that Hollywood should no longer try to match, it was proved true all over again, and in so doing, it calmly conquered the loathing and rage in which the crime was conceived. What will survive of us is love. We'll be right back with Noel Kassler. I was on a Crosby, Stills, and Nash tour, and we did a show in Chicago at the Chicago Theater, and we were going to have a day off and then fly to the East Coast. And Stills was like, I don't want to fly. Like, let's get out of Chicago. So after the concert, he's like, let's get on the bus and drive to Atlantic City. And I'm like, that's 17 hours, you know? Like, that's a long ride, man. He was the boss, so we left right after the concert, me, Steven, and his bus driver. And uh, when we pull off, like, we get out, and we're parked right on this street, like, right at, right by the beach. And so we get off the bus, and we're all groggy, and right in front of us is the Trump Plaza Hotel, which was already shut down. You saw the image of the thing getting imploded. It was that hotel. I'm like, Steven, look at that. You know, the guy who owns that building is running for president. That's what this country will look like if this guy got elected an abandoned, derelict, like, health hazard. Noel Kassler, welcome to the Prevail Podcast. Thank you, buddy. I'm glad to be here. I just... You look quizzical. What's wrong? I'm back. Sorry. I was messing with my computer. Great to see you. Great okay, to- let's... Wait, let's we'll start again. Okay, let's... <laughs> I was trying to close my email browser and I lost the screen and because I was on a Zoom earlier on a, in some other podcast and it was showing like that the meeting had ended. I'm like, what the you, fuck? You know, the, the topic of today's podcast is such that things may go awry, but I did not expect that they would go awry quite so quickly. So uh, <laughs> anyway, you've been you've been very busy. You, you've got your own podcast called Cleverly the Noel Kassler podcast, which is fantastic. It's kind of a, a, a take on your, uh, you know, your car rants and stuff like that, where you just deliver the news. So, you know, before we get into the, the, the topic of, uh, of today's show, tell us a little bit about the podcast. What, what, what was your inspiration for doing it? Why did you decide to start that medium at that moment? 
Well, you, you said it well. It's an extension of these car rants. I figured I needed a little more room to kind of stretch out in some of the things I'd been talking about on Twitter and stuff um, that, you know, folks kind of wanted me to expound on. And, you know, you started a podcast. I'm always following you. You started <laughs> a successful podcast and I'm happy to be here. So I had this kid, Jimmy Kennedy, too, you know, who yeah. was born with disability. He has cerebral palsy. And he, he fought his way into his local high school to be like a broadcaster because he wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And he's, you know, was in a wheelchair and he used a walker. So he couldn't actually get into the football thing where you call a game from right above the stadium. Yeah. So food for like equal access and then became a broadcaster up into the level of like the Colts. He worked for the Colts. So he was kind of bugging me. And I was like, well, I'll do it if you do it with me, just because he's from Indiana. He's somebody who's, you know, he's in his mid twenties. I just thought it would be interesting, you know, have a younger person from the heartland, you know, who had a cool story, you know, whose heart was in the right place to, to rant. So now I just like disillusion him about America and he starts crying all the time. <laughs> he's such a nice, innocent guy. And I talk about climate change and stuff and he, he leaves most episodes in tears. So he's, he's, he's great. He does a really good job. And, and I, I think at the beginning of the show, I think you could tell he was a little bit intimidated by you. And, you, and now I think he's at the point where he isn't so much anymore. And it's, it's, it's nice. You guys have a good vibe and you know, the show is really great. And I encourage everybody who's listening to this uh, to listen to your podcast as well. Um, you also have uh, two shows coming up, two comedy shows coming up. You have one on September 16th, which is going to be six days after people are hearing this at the Rams Head in Annapolis, Maryland, which um, you've assured me is a famous rock club. That's a Rams Head sounds pretty sounds pretty fucking great. Like yeah, no, Rams Tavern, classic crab cakes, like a hundred beers on taps. Great stage. I was last there 10 years ago with Stephen Stills. Like he was playing there and I was his road manager. It's a great club. That's cool. And then you've got another one coming up on November 18th, which is five days after my birthday. Int to anyone listening um, in Norwalk, Connecticut at the Wall Street Theater. So I think these are going to be great shows because it's been a while. I think people really want to come see you. I encourage everybody, assuming that it's safe and, you know, we're not all huddled under our desks again, wearing masks and stuff. Uh, go see Noel. Show him your support. Uh, he's fantastic. I, I want to say one more complimentary thing before we get into the, 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 the meat of the, uh, of the topic for today, which is that you pretty much, I think, have come to prominence initially, certainly because you worked at Celebrity Apprentice and you had inside information and stuff like that. And all of that super useful. And you were very courageous in the way that you uh, told everybody what was going on with the, the drug abuse and the, the racism and all the other horrible things that were happening inside Trump land. But I think that there, in addition to all of that information that you have, your analysis of things, your take on things and the way you present the information and the way you make it funny and accessible is really, really valuable, more valuable, actually, than just the information that you had coming forward. So I think with you, it's not in fact, the, the all of that stuff, um, while important, is, is in my mind, you know, long in the past, like, in my view, you're really a really important voice. And uh, an analytical voice in what's going on in the United States and in the world right now. And I think people should really listen to the show. That's my point. I think you do a great job and I'm, I'm delighted to have you here today. 
Well, thank you, Greg. I mean, that means a lot coming from you. You're one of the leading thinkers on all this stuff, you know, and uh, I, I love your work. You know, you know that I, on my website, you can find a couple of Greg's articles. We did a couple interviews together last year and, you know, you, you've you've been out there in the front of this stuff and, and not afraid to tell the truth like it really is. And that's the frustration we're facing is that yeah. like everyone's like blank playing nice. And it's like, look, we're running out of time here. You know, we need to take this stuff seriously and be honest about the threats we're facing. It's brutal. It's, it's, it's a brutal, uh, it's a, I fear for the future. I, I really do. I'm optimistic. I'm always hopeful. I, you know, I know we have, we outnumber them. We have spirit and right and goodness on our side, but it's some days it's, you know, it really does make me shudder. And I feel like maybe like Jimmy that I need to cry at the end. <laughs> I hear you, brother. <laughs> um, so I asked you on, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while, but I, I would, I'm not going to have you on the show and ask you, tell us about the time that Trump did Adderall, because like, that's like having Billy Joel on and be like, play piano, man, just for me. Like, you must be tired of telling these stories by now. And I looked at the calendar, you know, I, I was on hiatus for two whole weeks. I tried to rest a little bit and I looked at the calendar, September's coming up and, and it's like, oh my God, it's not only is it 9-11, but it's the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I was in Manhattan on 9-11. I was there that day. And, you know, it's meaningful to me. It's meaningful to everybody, obviously, in, in, in some ways, but it's especially meaningful to me having been there and lived through it. So um, I went last week, as we're recording this, I was with some colleagues on a, on a trip and we were uh, at dinner talking about 9-11 because again, the anniversary is coming up. And I said, I was in Midtown and they were all like, really? Oh, wow. Cause I mean, and one of the people that I was with was in second grade at the time. And the other uh, person I was with was a baby. Right. So, and at the time when it happened, I lived in New York city, all my friends were in New York city. So it was a shared, very much a shared communal experience. But now I'm up in New Paltz. Most of the people that I know were not in New York on 9-11. And what I would like to do today uh, with you, especially because I know you were there and you're in my mind, such a New York guy. And I know you were also involved with uh, the anniversaries and the memorials that that followed. We'll, we'll talk about all that later. I really want to get you on to talk about 9-11 and not the politics of it or what happened or this or that, just the day itself. And what a what a unfathomably crazy day that it was. So um I figure we could just kind of go back and forth a little bit. So start, start me off. Um, tell me where, where were you that morning? You know, how does it, how does the story start for you? And then it I'll tell starts, you how it started for me. Okay. It starts a little lighter than it ends up. Okay. <laughs> so I'm doing, we got to back up a few days. I'm doing the VMAs at Lincoln center, the video music awards, MTV music awards on Thursday night. And I'm assigned to Michael Jackson and I was also hired to work on a Michael Jackson reunion concert on Sunday and Monday night at Madison Square Garden, right? And I'm, I'm working with Michael backstage and he wasn't really my thing. I was more of a Prince guy, you, you know what I mean? So I wasn't like in awe of Michael. And this was when he was sort of on a downward slope of his career. He was facing a lot of controversy and he was just bizarre. You know, he was wearing a mask way before his time there, but it was just really weird. And he had like Yuri Geller there as his best friend, supposedly, though they just met two weeks ago. And it was bizarre. Like I had yeah. to shut down the hallways. I couldn't let you two get back to their dressing room. It was just a crazy thing. He went on stage and like 
didn't do what he was told, like started acting like he'd been given out an award and he was like supposed to introduce sync or something. It was just, and they're like, no, what did you tell him? And I'm like, nothing, you know, it was just bizarre. So I went to my boss and said, look, I'm hired to do this gig. What are we doing Sunday, Monday? Cause I'm already out of gas and it's Thursday night, you know? <laughs> and she said, well, we have Marlon Brando and Liza Minnelli scheduled to appear with him. We don't have a shooting script or any idea what the show's going to be. Right. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I've been around. I'm 30 years old at this point. So I've been in the business almost 10 years. Like I knew this was going to be a disaster, you know. So I said, look, there's a million guys who'd love to, like, put Michael Jackson on their resume because I'd already done Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with him and stuff. I said, I just rented this cabin up in Woodstock. It's supposed to be beautiful this weekend. You know, can you replace me on this show? Is it too late to replace me? And she goes, no, fine. Go up to your cabin, you know. I'll replace you. And the show ended up being a disaster. People were like, there was nothing happening on the stage. So people are throwing like their soda cups and stuff down on the stage and like rioting, you know, but uh, the show was Monday, you know, Sunday and Monday night. And Monday was the 10th, September right, right. 2001. So I wake up the next morning, Tuesday morning, because I took a long weekend. And I'm in this cabin. It's a beautiful day, as everybody remembers, you know, all a bluebird day, not a cloud in the sky, zero mm -hmm. humidity, just a deep blue and a peace and a sunshine. And I had to drive back into the city and uh, my cat was sitting there. And I said to myself, if my cat hops back in bed right now, I'm not going into the city today. It was like the weirdest thought. It just came into my mind. And of course, my cat hopped in bed and I sort of went back to sleep for a little bit. And then the phone rang, you know, and somebody said, turn on the TV. And I turned on the TV and, you know, saw that, you know, at, at, at that point, it was still like, oh, some plane had hit one of the towers. And it was people thought it was like a private plane or something like a small plane. Nobody realized, yeah. you know, what was happening. And then, of course, we saw the second plane hit the towers and you just completely freak out. We lived downtown at the time, below 14th Street, not on Wall Street or Battery Park, but we lived like Waverly and Green. So yeah, it's uh, pretty far down. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. we weren't allowed to go home anyway. So now mm -hmm. we're sort of upstairs. My uncle is the managing editor of Time Magazine at the time. They're the nation editor for Time Magazine. So he had to send a bunch of reporters and photographers down there. Yeah, you know, I think he and Nancy Gibbs put together that time, you know, thing. And I remember talking to him at one point and he's like, you know, my photographers just came back with all these photos and they just went into like a dark room. And I think of the thousands of pictures, there was like three that he could actually publish, you know? Yeah, was, yeah. Right. Just from that, you know, a journalistic standpoint. So we watched the whole thing. And then when they opened up the bridges again, we, we went back into the city. You know, we drove back into the city and. What was interesting was we, we, you know, I watched Giuliani's press conference. I'd already worked with Giuliani before. I'd known him to be a tyrant. You know, that same yeah. covered him at New York Magazine when he was at City Hall. And like Rudy was not popular in New York. People forget this. He, he's oh. not. Yeah, right. No, no. He he was he was the he, trash. I mean, his reputation was completely deservedly destroyed, completely destroyed. Yeah, exactly. You know, so and I remember seeing that morning, like the images of him walking down to ground zero, you know, with a mask over his face, looking like the hero. And I already knew the story of like he wouldn't put the the headquarters out in Brooklyn. Right. You know, Chiefs wanted him to do the disaster preparedness. I already knew about all that stuff. So that was obviously a photo op. 
he did his press conference. I remember it being somewhat, you know, comforting. I have to admit. You oh, know, sure. Yeah, absolutely. For that, Because as you remember, George Bush was AWOL. Like he was yeah. just flying around over Nebraska or something like that. It was like there was no one in charge and we didn't really know what was coming next. If you remember, it was like, oh, they found a van at the 59th Street Bridge. Right. There was all these other. There was a lot of there was a lot of stuff happening. And I'm, I, I'm saying this. I know you know, I'm saying this for anybody listening that might not have been there or not been old enough or just doesn't remember the first. I, I, I worked at the Associated Press at the time. So I got to 50 Rockefeller Plaza. The AP building was still at 50 Rock, right, right in the middle of, of uh, Midtown Manhattan. And when I walked in, the receptionist said to me, oh, you know, plane hit the it's like quarter to nine plane hit one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And again, the, the John Denver plane crash had happened fairly recently. And that's the sort of image I think that everybody had in their head. Like you said before, the small plane. And I think I I was one of thousands of New Yorkers who made the same, like how bad of a pilot do you have to be to hit the, you know, that joke and, uh, you know, went in. And then there was there was time that elapsed between then and when the second, once the second plane hit, everybody knew what was going on. Um, and then there was time after that before the, uh, the tower, you know, they collapsed, but that there, there was about an hour or whatever, whatever the actual time was. And in that time, nobody really knew what was happening. And also every unessential or non-essential worker in New York city was sent home. So everybody spills out into the street. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous, like you said, just a perfect, if I think of one beautiful day in all my life, it is that day. It was just fantastic. Everybody is out in the street. Nobody has anywhere to go. Nobody knows what to do. There's radios on every corner because there's no Twitter. There's no Facebook. There's no there's no social media. Nothing like that. Again, it's long en enough ago that Michael Jackson and Marlon Brando are still with us. You know, this is a while ago. So, again, there is this time. And in in that those moments, there were lots of wild rumors about things because people didn't know what was happening. There was people were trying to figure out how many planes are there? How many planes have been hijacked? They landed every plane in the sky, which had never happened before. Um, there are all these rumors of the, oh, this plane is going to go here. And there's a, maybe there's a plane and they headed for Disneyland and there's a plane headed for this place. And I remember seeing on the crawler, cause we went into the AP, the main office of, of the HR guy to watch it on TV. And it said, St. Louis is closing the arch. And I'm thinking nobody's gonna hit the arch at St. Louis. Come on guys, settle down. You know, because uh, it's still sort of it, it's just you're not quite there in the brain yet. So um, anyway, for people listening, there is these there are these hours where nobody knows what's happening. Also, nobody's cell phones worked because everyone was using them at the same time. And so if you had a cell phone, and that was it. You're, you're done. There was no way of getting a hold of anybody. Anyway, so no, yeah. well said. And, and for the listeners that weren't there, like cell phones were not yet ubiquitous, yes. you know, like 60% of the people had them. They weren't an essential item, you know? So, and there were flip phones and stuff. So we didn't have social media. You couldn't share pictures. You know, if it happened now, God forbid, you'd, you'd know everything just off of Twitter or whatever, you know, right. you'd be able to disseminate 50 news services at once. You were basically relying on the, the TV news, you know? And, and you're right. Like it's hard to describe, but like the world shut down. Yeah, I think there was a yeah. kind of song like, where were you when the world stopped turning? It was very true. The entire world stopped and turned on the TV. 
all over the globe because nothing like that had happened and it played out in real time like a horror movie. You know, it wasn't, it was this massive geopolitical event that also was like the same length as, a, as an action movie. You know, it took an hour and a half to watch from beginning to end. And it ended like way more horrible <laughs> than your yeah. brain could almost compute because they fell down and you're like, they're not there anymore, you know? Yeah. So it was just, it was an insane feeling that lasted for months. 9-11 was months, it was you know, months. It was yeah. Yeah. the initial shock. And, uh, you know, I remember we went back into the city right afterwards, you know, when they opened the bridges again and let us go back down and um, we had to move. We moved to, to 180 East End Avenue, which is right across the street from Gracie Mansion. And by the time we got home, Giuliani had blocked off like a four block radius with these big salt trucks you know so he blocked off carl Schurz park and 86th street with these big salt spreaders so you couldn't drive a van in you know and get at us yeah. so we actually felt kind of safe we're like well we're probably the safest people in the city you know and a side note if you know where that is it's on the east river right across from hell's gate so there's 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 these winds that blow and change the tide changes there during the day and uh, so we left our windows open because it was such a nice fall. And when you're on the Upper East Side, then, you know, all you saw was all the, the missing posters, which right. you can't describe to somebody until you see 50, you know, you know, photos in the 86th Street subway station like missing. And you knew nobody was coming home. You, yeah. you know, it was like they were up for days and you just knew you were looking at ghosts that were your friends and neighbors. I knew a ton of people down there that walked down there. I knew a ton of first responders, you know, that's their stories and I won't get into them, but I heard all kinds of stuff. You know, I know a guy who was at a job interview and he showed up early, you know, and he didn't make it out of the building, you know, oh, he's God. waiting for a job interview. Like that kind of stuff was just because the Upper East Side, which is primarily my home. I mean, that was the capital of it. That and the people lived in Jersey. You know, because all the finance guys, you know, they buy houses in Jersey when they move from the Upper East Side. So right. we, we come back home and we left the windows open. And I remember like that first night home, like sleeping. And then at like three in the morning, this smoke came in the apartment, just this acrid smell of like a million burning computers and something else more sinister. You know, yeah, I know. I remember. Yeah, yeah, you want to compute and what's that? Oh, I know what that is, you know. And an aside to that is I felt like because I remember Giuliani was like, yeah, we can open the schools again. Everybody, you know, go back to work. The air is safe to breathe. And I'm like, how is the air safe to breathe? Like, there's no way that that air is safe to breathe. Breathe. Now we know it's not right. Because right. a lot of first response, more first responders died from exposure at 9-11 than died on that day by a long shot. But I remember thinking that like and feeling like, well, they're not, you know, Giuliani's back to being a dictator because he's telling people to go back to work downtown where it's clearly not safe to breathe. And he would get out of his SUV every night wearing a mask because I would I could look down from my kitchen onto the entrance of Gracie, you know, of Gracie Manor where he lives. Yeah. And he'd get out of the car wearing a mask. And I'm like, you're just coming from City Hall. You're wearing a mask and telling me it's OK to breathe the air. You know, and you're still wearing the mask up here at like 88th Street. So I remember thinking, well, that's not going to turn out well. And I remember, you know, I don't want to get into the politics, but he tried to keep himself as mayor. People yes, he did. 
He was like, nope, no more election because the election, I think, was that Tuesday. Right. It was. It, it was. And, and one of the I think one of the one of the sliding doors moments of 9-11 is that Mark Green was going to be the mayor of New York and Bloomberg won mostly because Giuliani endorsed it, like I completely flipped the election cycle. But getting back, but getting back to Giuliani for a second, again, we, now we have an image of him, right, the rightly image of him, I think, as a buffoon with, with, with you know, dye streaming down his face, lying about this and that. At the time, he started off as mayor. He cleaned up a little bit of things. He, he was responsible for the Disneylandification of the 42nd Street area which was kind of not so good in a lot of ways. But the, the one thing as a New Yorker who lived there, that meant that all the tourists just stayed there, which I kind of dug. But by the second term, as you said, he, he, he took on these sort of Mussolini dictatorial airs. That's why people called him Benito Giuliani. That was one of the nicknames that they had for him. But Giuliani was a media whore and is, remains a media whore. He is always on TV. He was, you know, somebody, what was it? Was it Comey who said it? You know, it was safest, you know, where you the most dangerous place between him and the microphone or the camera or whatever it is. So on 9-11 happens, you don't hear from Giuliani for a while, which is astonishing because this is a guy who is, you know, and then when you finally see him and it's maybe it's half an hour later or something, he's emerging from the rubble of some building where he is with a mask on. It's the optics are fantastic because he looks like this, you know, where is he? Oh my God, he's there checking it out. And the fucking building fell on him and then he just walks into the street and starts talking to people and he does have that way where he's like oh okay uh he doesn't so much anymore but at the time he you know he had authority and people listened to him and he did make everybody feel better i think in the moment even though as you pointed out the fact that the that the emergency uh offices were not moved somewhere outside of the world trade center was his fault also the, the cell phones that he didn't renew that kept fucking up that day, also his fault. So he's responsible for a lot of shit. But on that day, nobody's thinking about these things so much. It's just we need leadership. Here's Giuliani. And the president is gone. George Bush was in that airplane for hours and hours. It was the evening on 9-11 before he appeared. And I don't know what was happening. There was lots of rumors. But my God, there was a vacuum of leadership and Giuliani's stepped right into it and held it for months after months and months. Yeah, no, he sure did. And, uh, you know, just to go back to like that walk was staged from City Hall because he knew it was going to happen again because the towers had been attacked in 1993. Right. Right. All the security agencies said, look, you got to move the headquarters out to Brooklyn because then our chiefs can go out there and communicate because it's going to get attacked again. And Giuliani was like, no, because he knew he wanted the photo op of walking down from City Hall, which, as you know, is like eight block walk or whatever. So he was that moment was manufactured. 9-11 wasn't manufactured, but his optics were were rehearsed. He didn't by any imagination knew what the extent of it. You know, I think he thought there'd be another, you know, bomb in a in a parking lot somewhere. He wasn't thinking like what happened was going to happen. But, and also to go back, I did an event probably a year before 9-11 with Giuliani down there at the Winter Garden. You remember the Winter Garden that was part of the Twin Towers? It was like this atrium that was okay, just yeah, yeah. Battery Park City. And we did a uh, Goodwill Games, which was Ted Turner's used oh, to right. have, like Olympics kind of thing, right? And I was assigned to Giuliani and I was also assigned to Jimmy Carter that day. So I had Jimmy Carter, um, 
George Pataki, who hated Giuliani. They were like mortal enemies. And Ted Turner waiting on the dais to kick off. It was like the, the kickoff of the Goodwill Games. You know, they're supposed to like pull a handle or something. And I go to get Rudy and he's sitting in a makeup chair and he's sitting like he's in Borat. You know, he's like all splayed out the chair, <laughs> like crotch kind of prominent and like, you know, some pretty makeup artist is working. And I said, hey, you know, Mr. Mayor, it's time for me to take you down to stage now. And he turns at me, takes a piece of the script that's in front of him, crumples it up and goes, I'm not effing saying that and throws it at my face and it bounces off of my face. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> like the mayor of New York City just cursed at me and threw something in my face, you know? So I get on the little headset and I'm like, hey, you know, Giuliani's not <laughs> not coming down now, apparently, you know? And I said, sir, we got to, we'll fix whatever. He goes, I'm not coming until you change it. Change it right now. I'm not saying that. And I said, okay, we'll change it in the teleprompter, you know? And he goes, no, I want to see a hard copy of the change or I'm not leaving, which shows how savvy he was about how TV works, right? Yeah, he totally. The department to like, you know, he wanted to prove, which was kind of savvy, you know, it was savvy because we could have just pulled a fast one. But anyway, I finally get him up. He's completely belligerent. And the joke was, welcome to New York. It's a beautiful city. Just don't jaywalk. He thought that was too deprecating, you know, because it was pointing to what you said. He was thought of as a little Mussolini by then, you know, but that's the kind of guy he was, you know, and is. He was just shaving the other day in, in JFK. There's a video of him sitting at a, like a food court shaving. But anyway, there was that air of, you know, a, a leadership void. And yes. then there was this guy who fills that role. And as a New Yorker, that was somewhat comforting because he did play the part of a New Yorker. And the other thing that sticks out to me in those initial days was going back home. And so now we're living on the Upper East Side and I'd get out of the 86th Street subway and it's a long walk to East End, right? It's like four or five blocks. You pass a lot of bars, Second Avenue, Third Avenue. These were bars that were always jamming because they were kind of like the frat boy bars, mm -hmm. like Dorian's Red Hand and all these Irish bars, you know, where people get off work, where firefighters and cops drink and stuff and in Yorkville. And they were silent, you know, like people were just playing CNN quietly and sitting in darkened bars and drinking and smoking cigarettes and stuff. And as loud as New York City has always been, it was eerily quiet for days after. Yeah. You know? And totally. that was a weird vibe thing. It was like such a massive event. It it quieted and shut down the city. And, and there was like, how do we get it moving again? And I remember real soon they, they we did these benefits at, at NBC. We did a telethon with Springsteen, you know, maybe a week or two after when he came out and played My City of Ruin. Right, and, right. And, and even that stuff was just like, you didn't know if it was the right thing to do. You just sort of knew it needed to be done. And, and I had worked on the reunion tour with Springsteen at the garden in 2000, the summer of 2000. So we're just over a year later, you know, and, and he was kind of like that band was coming to an end as far as I understood, like he was kind of done with it and nine 11 happened and it regalvanized him, which mm -hmm. was, I know it's a tangent, but he's a New Yorker, right? It regalvanized him because he knew these guys, you know, yeah. he firemen and cops. And so that's the other thing is that it was such a personal story. It was clear. We were going to have to learn a way to process it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. to move forward. And nobody knew how to do that. The, yeah. the, the, um, there was a cartoon in the village voice 
talking about, I can't remember the, the sequence of the cartoon, but it was trying, as you see the process, it was like, the victims are these people, the victims are these people, and the, the last um, square in the cartoon said, we're all victims of this, you know? And that was one of the ways to process and, and, and stuff like that. But I, the, the weirdness and the, and the quiet of the day, I wanna talk about that a little. I, 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 um, I went into, my wife and I just made, the, we, were, we had just moved to Astoria in Queens, and we went to the subway and we, we had to run to catch this particular subway. And I got out uh, in um, 47th Street in, in Midtown to go to work. And she kept going to meet her friend that were going to go running uh, on the East Side Park, whatever that is. A friend lived on East 9th Street. And uh, the, the subway rolled to a stop and they were like, OK, uh, everybody off. Uh, the train hit the uh, a plane hit the World Trade Center. Like, you know, that that New York completely, you know, uh, a plane hit the World Trade Center. Get off the get off the train. You know, like no, and everyone's like, "What the what?" So she got out and, and watched it fall from you know not that far away. So I wound up when I spilled into the street. I was like, "Well, I'll just go to our friend Kim's apartment and I'll meet you there." And I walked from Forty Seventh Street to Ninth Street, which is you know that's a hefty walk, and uh, all kinds of you know people are in the street. There's um, radios are on coming out of all the cabs. Uh, not that much traffic of driving because they wouldn't let you off the island. So, every, it, you know, where were you going to go? Everyone from New Jersey had to stay in Manhattan that night. There was nowhere for them to go. And um, I remember walking down and and very much feeling like I was in some sort of action movie or something like that. Where, But I knew I would be okay because I was in the action movie. But there was like, there was a guy in the street handing out Lyndon LaRouche literature. And it's like, dude, read the room, you know. You walk down the street, there was somebody's getting their hair cut. Okay. People were, were, you know, saying, hey, come use, do you have to use the bathroom? Come use the bathroom. Have a bottle of water, which in New York, never, never, no one ever offers you to use the bathroom in New York City. When I was in high school, I used to joke that the Trade Center was there because those were the only two bathrooms in New York that you want to make sure you could find them, right? So um, you mentioned the quiet, but the, 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 the sense that I got that day was this kindness, and even though it was a horrible thing that happened, I really felt and I could feel it, you know, walking around. This wasn't a chaos as much as the, there was a lot of love and kindness in the city that day that I and it, and it lasted for a while afterwards. And it 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 sort of I wouldn't say it restored my faith because I always suspected that beneath the bitter shell, New York people are just as nice as the the people in the South who say, oh, aren't they so nice? We just don't like to show it because we don't want you in our shit all the time. Right. But like it, that was the case that day. There wasn't any, there was no reports of petty crime or anything. Nobody got beat up. It wasn't like that at all. I, I never felt unsafe other than, you know, the fact that these towers were collapsing yeah. and stuff like my, that I was talking to my wife about this. Uh, I don't know, last week. And she said, you know, it dawns on me now, like, how close we, we all really came, but we all could have died that day easily. And I, I, at the time it felt like, I think my uncle called my mom from California to check on me. And I was like, ah, I'm in Midtown, not right. anywhere near there. You know, like, how dare you? Don't you know the, the map of New York City? But we were all in New York. I mean, you know, it was crazy. Like any the plane could have gone anywhere. Like it could have been much worse if, the, you know, I, I, I shudder to think, but it's, it's, a, it's just a nutty day. Yeah. Completely. You know, and it, you're right. It does speak to how compartmentalized New York is, you know, because if you were on the Upper East Side or Upper West Side, like or even Midtown, 
you you wouldn't necessarily if you didn't like you had a better view of it from Brooklyn. You know, all yeah. the iconic things that you watch now are they're all shot from the Brooklyn waterfront because that's where you could truly see the magnitude and horror of it. You didn't really get a sense of it north of 14th Street, you know, besides the dust and and and, and smoke, <laughs> which I guess would give you a clue that something isn't right. But you get my point. And I like what you said about New Yorkers because it, it showed the true spirit of New Yorkers. And yes, we're not like, hey, y'all, how you doing? Like Southerners. Because we can't be. We have to live in such close proximity and there's 12 million of us. It would get annoying if you had to say good day and greet everybody you came in six inches of contact with, because that would be several thousand people by the time you got to the office in the morning. But when it counted, we pulled together, you know, and if I have any regrets about that day, it's that I didn't get to go down to ground ground zero and hand out water because all my friends did. All my friends went down there. You know, I went to drama school, so I knew a lot of actors and stuff that were in the city and they were all down there. You know, the, the West Side Highway became like a relief supply center. Right, you know? right. Yeah. And the other thing is that the cavalry came in quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. Towers came down and the first message that went out, and I believe Giuliani even said this, is we need like wire cutters. We need metal workers. You know, we need guys with settling torches to help look for victims and cut through some of this metal. And dudes came in from Pennsylvania, New York, like they did let those people into the city and they were all coming down the West Side. Dudes just got in their cars and started coming to help on that pile. And they, those guys needed something because there was no plan for them. Right. Yeah. Dudes just hopped in their cars, grabbed their equipment <laughs> and headed for New York City. So when they got there, they needed water. They needed food. You know, you needed a triage center for all this stuff. And that sort of just appeared, you know, because as you said, the president was gone. Right. FEMA wasn't like didn't have a plan for this. You know, even yeah, the yeah. thing. Remember when we were growing up, Greg, they always had that thing on the television. Like this is a test of the emergency broadcast system in the event <laughs> yeah, yeah. of an emergency. Right. Where yeah. are we on 9-11? I never <laughs> No, you're right. You're right. There was, there was nothing. It was just like, oh, you know, hey, I'm Katie Couric. A plane hit the building. You know, it was just boom, you know. So we were kind of on our own. You know, I don't think there was a better example of us being on there on our own in a way. And, and in the initial days, it hadn't yet been politicized, you know, by right, the time right. got there and got up on the piece of rubble and said, they're going to hear from all of us right now. And of course, we're seeing the results of that now, <laughs> you know, right. yeah, yeah. another topic and I won't go there. But, you know, when that moment happened, I was like, damn, now it just switched from like being a very personal tragedy that should only be about helping each other and dealing with us to like, you know, the hint of vengeance in the air. And I knew that wouldn't go anywhere well, you know, with the administration we had, because once they figured out how to game it out and use it to their advantage, that became the story, you know, when and I and I won't go there because you're talking about the real story, which was the people of New York. You yeah. mentioned Astoria. a couple actors I was friends with lived in Astoria like 31st and Steinway Street or something, you know, and I remember being at their apartment shortly after and I was like, so what did you guys do that day? Like, well, we had to walk back here. Yeah. I'm like, wait, where, where did you work? They're like, oh, I worked at, you know, 8th Avenue and 30th Street. And I'm like, you walked back to Astoria? Subways and didn't run, man. They let me off at Queensborough Plaza. It took me two hours to, yeah. Dude, I couldn't imagine. I mean, I had to walk during the blackout, which was like a year later. Yeah, I had to do that too. Yeah. yeah. 
from from midtown to this building that we moved in because of 9-11 and i lived on the 20th floor which i'll never do again Uh, 20 (laughs) lights up man and i was 30 and it almost killed me but um you know so that was the story it's like people did pull together you know they they did like they didn't you know i think in my experience, people kind of watched it that morning and, and then said, I got to turn off the TV and help. It wasn't, you know, New Yorkers aren't ones to sort of navel gaze and feel sorry for themselves. You know, they kind of have to take action. I don't think we know what to do in the face of horror like that unless we're doing something. And I saw that right away and felt that. I felt an enormous pull to go down there. I mean, I, w- I, I went as far south as I as I could, as far downtown as I could. Everybody that was stuck there just wanted to get out of there, but everybody else was drawn to it in in a way. I had a friend who was in the financial center and, you know, he got out, but he was covered in the stuff. And at one point he said there were so many people running. He thought he was going to dive into the into the river to swim, which is, you know, sort of obviously horrifying. But um, I watched, you know, we watched I I, I bought a, a six pack of beer at, I don't know, 1030 in the morning. I can't even imagine how much alcohol was consumed that day. It must, if they were able to quantify these things, it must be still a record for a Tuesday, I, I would imagine. And there were these weird, like, you know, things with people that happen, I think, where, you know, somebody calls out of the blue and checks in on you. You know, you hear from people you haven't heard from in a while. The Our friend that we were with, we were in her apartment and there was a knock on the door and this guy comes and it's, it's a, uh, the guy she used to date. And he was like, I'm just nearby. I wanted to check on you and this and that. And then, you know, he left and she's like, I haven't seen him in two years. You know, he was just there and not, and he was, he was sort of compelled, uh, you know, to do that. Um, <laughs> uh, one funny, it's not funny, but uh, I, we moved to a story and we didn't have cable yet. I was trying to like hold off on getting the cable because at that time there was no Wi-Fi. you know, you, you just did the dial up. So you, you needed the telephone. You didn't need the cable. And, uh, the guy was scheduled to come on September 12th to install the cable. So I'm like, is he coming? Is, is he not coming? Who the fuck knows? But he did actually come uh, and install the cable. So props to him. But Astoria also, it's famous for being Greek, but there's a lot of Muslims in Astoria. So it was also interesting to see, you know, you you felt bad for uh, and protective, I did, of, of of our neighbors who were subjected to a lot of hate. The Sikh cab drivers, especially because they have turbans, um, were subjected to so much, uh, you know, derision, not on 9-11 itself, but in the days after, I think, more uh, as it as it got more, you know, people looked after the kindness wore off. People, I think, wanted to blame someone. Absolutely. I, I'm glad you mentioned that. That was actually the first thing I saw when I got back to the Upper East Side. I remember like one of the first mornings I was walking to the subway and I was on First Avenue and there was a cab driver Middle Eastern and, and two white guys, you know, plumbers, apprentices or something, you know, were waiting outside a plumbing supply place. And they were like, they started harassing the guy. And I remember yelling at them. I was like, he didn't do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> shut up, <laughs> you know, yeah. don't, don't even go there. Cause I didn't care. Yeah. You know me, I'll, 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 I'll speak up. But, um, and I also like what you said about, you know, the six pack at 1030, you know, I was sober at the time, but I went out and bought a pack of cigarettes that morning up in Woodstock. Cause you know, I, I have addiction issues and I was like, something's going to give today. I'm smoking yeah. cigarettes, you know? And I ended up, you know, drinking again after that. I don't want to use nine 11 as an excuse, but in the weeks after I walked into a bar and I essentially didn't walk back out again until 2005. 
you know, because that's what happens if I pick up a drink, you know, because it that the what I described earlier, those dark bars with just CNN playing and a big national tragedy. There's a part of me that takes comfort in that as crazy as that sounds. Sure. No, that's I mean, that's what a bar is ultimately at the end of the day. It's a yeah. But you know, I'm in recovery and I've been in recovery in New York City for 16 years. And, and my friends are all people who work in finance and are sober. And their stories are amazing because the recovery community in New York City came together right away. The church basements were filled like 24 seven in those initial days. And you probably remember Michael Judge, you know, the fire department chaplain. There's the iconic image of them carrying him out of the rubble. He was struck by a piece of debris and he died on 9-11. He was the the very famous Michael Judge, Father Michael Judge. He was in recovery. He was a big like stalwart in New York City AA. I can talk about that because he's passed and it was no secret. And I knew a bunch of guys he sponsored and stuff. And he was like, he was an angel to the fire department. You know, he was a really spiritual guy. They carried his body up to that old church right by Wall Street. I forget the name, but there's an iconic old church there. Trinity. Trinity. Exactly. One of the oldest churches in the country. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, so that was a there was a lot of beautiful human interest stuff. You know, people like we're going to get through this. You don't have to pick up a drink. You know, you don't have to, like, be alone because people, you know, their wives weren't coming home anymore. Their husbands weren't coming home anymore. Yeah. You know, people got up like that's the thing that you have to understand if you weren't there. It's just like it was a Tuesday morning. It wasn't. Like I'm sending my son off to Afghanistan. It wasn't a war. It was you were going to work on Tuesday morning. It was a normal time in it. And 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 pre 9-11, we were a pretty normal country. We'd come out of, you know, the progress and, and sort of prosperity of the Clinton years. Right. So we mm-hmm. were the tech boom and happened in the late 90s. We were still in the afterglow of that. You know, we were sort of a prosperous, busy country concerned with, you know, I don't even remember what was popular at the time in the culture, but, you know, reality shows is those were a new thing, you know, American Idol, that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden this massive tragedy happens on a Tuesday morning. That's beyond comprehension, you know, and 2000, 3000 people aren't coming home. You know, it's, it's it's weighty. And um, thank you for sharing the the story about your um, relapse. um, So I think it's important that people, you know, hear, hear that. And, um, I remember there's definitely a wave of emotions that I felt kind of day to day, almost like I think by the third, the, the second day I went out with, it was a Wednesday and my friends and I always went out on Wednesday. So we said, well, we'll just go out. And we went to a place called McHale's, um, which is on eighth Avenue near the theaters and stuff. There's a lot of theater people. I don't know if it's still there. A couple of my friends got in some sort of argument about movies or whatever. And I looked over and at the booth, um, you know, across the way, Ian McKellen was there, somebody, you know, doing the same thing I was. I guess he was in a show that obviously wasn't playing. His Broadway went dark. Baseball all got canceled, you know. But after that, I, I, I got sadder as it went along. And I think I got more afraid as it went along. And what made me feel better ultimately is a couple of days after we went to, um, a, again, a bar, you know, in, in Astoria, Broadway Station, it's called. I think that's where we were. There's a jukebox and you know, music is playing and I'm with my wife, who's a musician and our friend Russ, who's also a musician. So I'm with two people that can sing really well. And uh, Hey Jude came on, you know, I never really liked that song that much, but I don't know, for some reason, it really 
we all just sort of stopped what we were doing and started singing really loud. And when it gets to the na na na, you know, it really you know, it made me feel better in kind yeah. of this weird, like really hit me kind of way. So, yeah. yeah. And when, when Paul McCartney played that a couple of months later at the concert for Heroes at Madison Square Garden, he invited everybody in the crew to go on stage and sing it with him. Not just the firemen and stuff, like all my buddies that are stage managers ran up there and sang with him. That's <laughs> you know? awesome. That's awesome. Like, and it, it's a healing moment. And, you know, Springsteen, too, I think, played a big part in that. It's, it's interesting you talk about the arts and like Broadway being shut down. It's a theme in my work now is how, you know, being disconnected from our humanities keeps us disconnected from who we are. And I don't think we ever needed the arts as much as we did right then. I, if you remember, even SNL, when it came back on air, was like an iconic moment. Yep, when he, it was a big hey, deal. Can I be funny tonight? And when somebody was like, when have you ever been funny? You know, <laughs> right, like, right. <laughs> but we needed that. And, and back to the, even the Michael Jackson thing, like everything was shut down. So like Crosby, Stills and Nash, a band I used to work for was in Denver. And obviously there because the concerts were canceled all across the country. It wasn't just New York. It was like all cultural events, all sporting events done till further notice. And I remember CSN like had to give a ride to like a pro golfer and like Glenn Campbell or something because they had a tour bus and they were able to get to L.A. from Denver. But Michael Jackson, to, you know, to bring it back to Michael and Marlon Brando and Liza Minnelli are stuck in New York and they all live on the West Coast. Liza lives in New York sometimes. But so they rented a car and drove across the country. Now, this is a true story. Greg. I know. I know. <laughs> Can you imagine being at a gas station in Kansas, filling up your pickup truck, and you see Michael Jackson get out of the car and fill her up with gas, and then you look through the window and you're like, "Is that Marlon Brando? <laughs> Is that Liza Minnelli? Like, that's the craziest thing that ever happened of all of 9/11 stories, you know, on the lighter tip. That is just bizarre. Driving 2,000 miles." <laughs> With the three of them in a car. I think somebody made like an independent film out of it because it's just insane. Why but, is there no Instagram? Oh, we needed to have Instagram for that. Right? Exactly. That, and that, yeah, exactly. And, you know, you say that, but thank God there wasn't. Can you, I know, can, I know. A limited amount of footage and that's merciful. You know, it's, it was documented enough by the journalists. I'm glad there's not, not a thousand cell phone videos of people saying goodbye you know, on FaceTime or whatever on their cell phones in the smoky offices, you know, because I mean, that's what the lasting legacy for me is, is just the human toll and, and abject yeah. horror of that day of people saying, you know what, it, it's probably it's so bad inside that I'm going to jump out this window, you know, like that's it's hard to wrap your mind around that. Yeah, that, that became the option like, oh, and 30 seconds of fresh air you know, is better than how I'm, 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 I'm leaving either way, you know, and that's where the arts came in because it was trauma. It was PTSD and trauma for all of us. And you needed somebody to explain it. And I always turn back to Bruce because in, in many ways, like he and Billy Joel are kind of, if you grew up in the New York area, like I did, they're kind of like your valedictorians, you know, they're yeah. the ones explain this to you and i think the rising and i worked with bruce when the rising came out and at the grammys and and on those you know benefits and stuff and i think that was a great document in helping us heal because when you heard that it was like you know talking about a wife like whose husband isn't coming home and his shoes are still sitting by the door 
you know, like everything's normal, but you're not here. You know, and that was what I was trying to say. It wasn't, it wasn't a cataclysmic event for anybody who wasn't in downtown Manhattan. I don't right. mean, I mean, physically, you know, it wasn't like we got attacked and a whole swath of the country is burnt out or bombed out. It was just this one area, you know, it was like one block and then everything's normal, but nothing's ever going to be normal again. And that's a hard thing to, to wrap your head around. And without the arts, you don't wrap your head around it, you know, and it's sort of like we suffer a bit from that now, you know, as tumultuous as these times are, you think the soundtrack would be better. <laughs> <laughs> like the 60s, you know, had some, you know, 1968 was a tough year, but they had some great music. Right. What do we we don't have any of that. You know, you're not, you're not down with the with the Billie Eilish release. You're not. uh you know, I, I don't know. The new Lord, uh, Kanye can't figure out when his release date is. I don't know what, what's happening. I actually like Billy Irish, Eilish. So you're, you're so do you're, I. My kids are. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. <laughs> sweet. She cares about her audience, which I love. And she means a lot to the kids that listen to her. And that's all that's all an artist has to do. You connect with your audience, you know. Um, the Rising is an underrated Springsteen album, actually. There, there's the one track I can't remember the title where it almost sounds Middle Eastern. It's got this like Middle Eastern lilt to it. And it's, and, but it, he turns it into a Springsteen song. And you're like, how the hell did he do that? And it's, you know, of course, lyrically really good. I mean, he's as a poet, clearly superior to uh, Billy Joel, but yeah. Miami 2017, I seen the lights go out on Broadway, which he wrote in what, 1973, Billy Joel is eerily prescient. I mean, it's about basically, you know, towers falling and buildings falling in New York and New York, you know, it's kind of nutty. Everyone plays that New York state of mind, which is a horrible, horrible song that no one should ever play again. But Miami 2017 is the, is the best New York song, in my opinion. That's it. That's my opinion. Oh, I agree. And, and, and I agree, obviously like Billy's no, no kind of wordsmith compared to Bruce. He's a great melody composer yep. and he means a lot to New Yorkers. And he's all, it's always the two of them. We did a Sandy benefit at the garden and it was the two of them there too. And Billy was drunk for the sound check and bruce was laughing at how drunk billy was and uh and and billy came to that concert for heroes you know he put on a fireman's hat and sat at the piano and played new york state of mind and that stuff because it does mean so much to the firefighters you know yeah. the guys that like took the the brunt of 9 11 you know they're guys from staten island you know they're guys that Rockaway, far Rockaway had a lot, right? right? Well, yeah. my friend lives in Rockaway and we can't, we have to mention the plane that fell on Rockaway three weeks later. Talk about a kick in the gut. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. Like They still haven't recovered. And then they had Hurricane Sandy. But yeah, it was these, you know, we're both New Yorkers, right? So it's like, I still walk by, because I'm in the city every day. I mean, I've been hiding out in the country, you know, since the pandemic, but I still walk by these firehouses and, you know, now they have the plaques, 19 guys in this firehouse. And I always try to put myself in their shoes that morning, you know, in terms of like, what was it like? Like they came to work and you'll see them all the way uptown. You'll see them in Harlem and stuff, you yeah. know, and you're like, man, like 10 guys had to hop on a couple of trucks. And what did they take the West Side Highway? You know, and at what point do they realize like, oh man, like this is not something we're getting out of, you know, like, yeah. you know, and that's what Bruce captured well, like walking up the stairs, you know, like, and the, the people are saying, go back down. There's nothing for you up there, you know, and they kept going and they didn't have to be, if they had radios, somebody would have told them to get out of there, but that's a different thing, you know, but um, 
that's what happened, <laughs> right? Yeah. Also Giuliani's fault, by the way. I know, that's my point. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Giuliani cut their budget and they couldn't get a direct communication. Their commander yeah. would get out of the building. It's falling, you know, but it happened. There, there, I, I wanted, I'm glad you brought up the fire department because I feel like that's the one, one thing we haven't talked about yet is the, in terms of how that period of time was different, Again, I was I worked in Midtown, which is a couple blocks from St. Uh, St. Patrick's. So there were funerals constantly and you heard the bagpipes and the whole thing. And it was, you know, really sad for one of them. But you just you felt it every time it, it went by. But there was this um, this outpouring for firefighters in the city, you know, especially the, like it, it was weird. And I don't know if you if this is just in my little bubble, but I felt like the women of New York City, some of them went went a little nutty. You know where they went and found firefight. Like it, there was oh, yeah. like this. It was almost like a Greek play, like the, like a, a, some sort of um, you know group spell was cast on the city to 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 give comfort to the firefighters. Uh, no. I, I I can't I, I can't explain it in any way better than that. But it, I, I'm I'm not even trying to be funny. Like it was you felt no. it. It was a real thing that happened that I have never known before or since or seen anything even remotely analogous to it. You're absolutely right. I mean, I dated a girl once and, and like af well after 9-11 and we were going by a firehouse and she was like, yeah, after 9-11, I used to go there and, and hang out with the f firefighters all, all the time. <laughs> I'm not trying to be funny either. And I was just like, OK, because she, she cared, you know, she's trying yeah. to yeah. help. I'm not I, I know what you're thinking, listeners. But, you know, and maybe she did give them comfort in any way. That's hey, in France, after World War Two, you know, when they liberated France, like, you know, there was love shown at them because they wanted to comfort them. You know, firefighters, these strapping, good looking guys that were innocent and like their job is basically to save people. And then they met this, you know, horrific fate. And you would see all the flowers and everything, you know, the memorials there. But yeah. Lots of lots of women were drawn to that as you know, it's a wonderful thing. I'm going to move on quickly here to the <laughs> firefighters under that, Paul, when they finally snapped out of it, you know, and it lives with them forever. I'm not saying the heels, the wounds heal, but in all my years of live TV, I've never seen anything like this. So the concert for New York that Paul McCartney was like, everybody get together. He got the who he got all these people to do that from a production standpoint. We got kegs of beer and had them backstage. Because they invited, they gave free tickets to all the firefighters, all the Port Authority, Police Department, all the NYPD that could make it, that weren't working. So there's hundreds or maybe thousands of them in the garden. And they got hammered. They, they, we gave them the oh, whole I remember this. I remember watching that on TV. Yeah, it, it, there, was a, there was a, yeah. Hammered, bro. Because <laughs> <laughs> we just had keg after keg, you know. And at first they were quiet and somber. You know, and three songs, three beers into the concert, it was party time. And by the time, you know, Billy, who can, you know, he's basically the ultimate bar lounge singer for New yeah. York, you know, raise your glass and sing along. And they were and feeling something like that, you know, being in the room where people let go of that much tension and pain and allow themselves a moment to dance and sing and put their arm around their brother and say, I love you, man and shed a tear for their brothers they lost in a safe place. That's humanity. You know, that's what we fight for. You know, that's what we try to protect, you know, and that was strengthened by 9-11. You know, that, that's a permanent bond and the kind of thing that makes you stronger as a city, you know, and as people. And it's some of that we're missing these days because we got divided. There was nothing dividing us back then. 
we were told to come together and help out. And now we're told, don't wear, you know, I'm not going to go onto a tangent, but you can't divide a people. You need them to understand they're all one tribe. And in that moment, sort of the tribe was reconnected, you know, and, and, and the beers flowed and the tears flowed. And like you said, Paul McCartney ended the show with Hey Jude. And he yeah. was like, anybody who wants to get up on sing, get up and sing, sing. And they did. You, you can look it up on YouTube. Your listeners can look it up. Drunk firemen standing next to like Paul McCartney on stage singing, you know, and we did a tribute to John Lennon too, right after it was at October at Radio City Music Hall. That was the, the, the same kind of thing. Lou Reed played and a bunch of people, Cindy Lauper. And it was another moment where I felt the city come back, you know, where I felt the arts start to creep in again to the point that like, you know, we're going to get through this, you know, and then the Yankees. I was going to say, yeah, that was a, that was a big one because they were good that year. And, and it was a, you know, it was a thing. And t Joe Torrey was very popular as a, you know, as a figure of, um, you know, as a leadership figure. People did look up to those guys for sure. Absolutely. And Joe Torrey was awesome. I love that guy. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Can I tell you a Joe Torrey story? Please. Okay. So I'm doing like an ESPYs or something at, uh, at, Radio City Music Hall. David Wright. Do you know David Wright, the pitcher, the Yankees pitcher? Oh, oh the big guy with the kind of crazy guy. You know, yeah. he's like nuts. You know, no, so, no, um, Wells, David yeah, Wells. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. David Wells was like this. So David Wells is sitting there, and and Joe Torrey's right behind him. And I go to get David Wells. He's going to give out an award, right, with with Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. And I'm like, David, it's you know we're commercial break. It's time for me to bring you backstage now. And David's like, what are you talking about? I was like, you're giving out an award. Like we, we need to get up and go. We have two minutes. He goes, I'm not getting up there. I'm not going on stage. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, this is predetermined. <laughs> like you don't say no now. And Joe Dory is sitting right behind him can see the sheer terror and panic in my face. Cause I'm about to not deliver somebody on a live TV show leans forward and whispers in David's ear and goes, Hey, David, you know, Mark and Sammy are in that segment with you. And then David looks at me and goes, well, I get to meet him. I'm like, you're giving out an award with him. Yeah, you'll meet him. He goes, okay, I'll do it. And he hops up like a little kid. And I look at Joe and I mouth, thank you. And he just winks at me. And it was like, oh, I get, <laughs> I get what a manager is. You're, they're kids, you know, baseball players are big kids, you know, and you're, you're tempting them and manage, you know, holding out a carrot. But um, I know we're running out, out of time here. Let me know I when you want me to tell you the, the, the moment that really brought it back for me. That that's that. Let, let me see if there's there anything else on my list that that. Uh, no, I, I I've mentioned everything that I want to mention. So I, that's what I want to hear. Okay, so it's months after. It's probably November at this point. You know, we're all grinding through it. Nothing feels normal again, and it's not gonna for a while, right? For years and in, in yeah. many ways. And uh, but you you knew like you knew we needed to to turn a corner because we got hit with the anthrax scare. I remember getting caught on the East side drive that the day that they sent anthrax to NBC and stuff. And, and people were like, escape from New York again, you know, right. like gridlock uh, on the East side drive and like people that were like uh, Orthodox were getting out of their cars when the sun went down to walk up to where you live. You know, they were going up to Nyack in that area for the weekend. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because they couldn't be in a vehicle anymore after Sunday. Like it was insane. It took four hours to go like 20 blocks. So it felt like one thing after another, you know, and you knew we were going to war. 
you know, like the drum of war started to the, the drums of war started to drown out the the, you know, the, the remorseful post 9-11 feelings, you know, people started to get angry, you know, sure. you started a lot of that Nashville kind of polemics that were coming out, how we we're going to put a boot in the ass of the enemy and all this stuff that I didn't find very helpful. And I'm leaving the office and I'm going into Grand Central to catch the sixth train up to the Upper East Side. And I walk in that door, you know, the hallway closest to Lexington Avenue. And just as I go through those doors, I notice like a commotion over in the corner to the left. And I see these guys like lowering this woman down to the floor. And I hear all this noise, you know, distress. And I'm like, oh, my God, what's happening? And a bunch of people come over. And then like somebody's yelling like, I need I need tweezers. You know, I need sutures. I need some some water. Somebody get some water and somebody runs and gets water. Somebody's like, I need some towels. Somebody runs and gets towels. You know, somebody else is like, I need wire clippers and like a electrician's like, I got these. And I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, what are, are they doing surgery on somebody? And somebody yells out, she's having a baby. And at this point, like there's 150 of us there. Right. <sighs> and everyone's like, what's happening? She's having a baby. What? Oh, my God. You know, you know how it is. Like everybody yeah. who came. I was like, hey, what's happening? She's having a baby. Oh, shit. Guess I'm missing the train. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like we're going to see what's happening here. Right. But we're all tense, you know, and finally, like some EMTs or something made it by and they're like, she's having it now. Give us some space. And they give her like, you know, 10 foot circle around the woman. And we all hold our breaths. Right. Because it was like to a person we knew we couldn't take any more bad news. You know, we all stood there and knew the truth of like, if this moment doesn't work out right now, this is going to break me. <laughs> you know, it was just like everyone knew it. You felt it in our silence and you hear her push, you hear a little wail. And then this guy goes, it's a beautiful boy. And he holds it up and the baby lets out a cry and 200 people started clapping, man, and crying, you know, wow. In that moment, I knew New York was back, you know, because in our collective humanity, like we pulled together and life goes on. Oh, I almost made it through this without crying, Noel. Damn you. <laughs> no, that's a that's a great story. That that's and you're right. It 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 did bring us together. And, you know, what you said before is true. I think it it galvanized us. It made us stronger. And I think that 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 feeling is still there. And I you know, this is one of the reasons I think why I remain so hopeful about this country and the people in this country is because I, I was there on 9-11 and I wasn't downtown. I was in Midtown, but I was still there and I witnessed what I witnessed and what I saw was kindness more than anything else, kindness and genuine concern for the other people that were living through the same thing that we were living through. And that that's what it is. My God, that baby that was born is old enough to go have a, a drink at one of those bars on the Upper East Side. No doubt. You know, and, and like you said that, you know, I'll wrap it up now. But like, you know, I worked on all the memorials because my job was live television. So by the next year, we had to read out all the names. Yeah. You know, started doing these events at Ground Zero once they cleared it. And I did them all the way up until the museum opened. And we had like five living presidents come for the museum opening. And when I began, you know, sort of our MO was we'd have the children get up and read their parents' name who was lost. And when I started doing it, it was like three-year-olds, you know, and they'd be like, my daddy, you know, Mark, yeah. Ramirez, 
and it was just heartbreaking. And I would literally stand there for four hours <laughs> and have these children get up and say this. And then they turned into teenagers, you know, 10 years later, they're like 13, like, Hey daddy, I made the football team. Like it was still as horrific, you know, and now they're adults and they're out there in the world and they're honoring their parents' name and legacy, you know, and they're making the world a better place, you know, and I'm sure all those souls lost are looking down, you know, and, and comforted that their, their families carry on. And I'll say one more thing. Giuliani would show up at all these things. And I worked in the VIP kind of tent and he was the only guy I ever saw smile. So if I didn't need more, you know, proof that he has no heart, he would work the room like he was happy to be there. Imagine smiling on the morning of nine, you know, on a 9-11 memorial when you're at ground zero, when you went down there at five in the morning, like it's as somber and a fair as you can imagine. And Giuliani would always show up like, hey, guys, like it was his party. Yeah. yeah. You know, like smiling at a funeral, like you just don't do it. You know, there's something missing there in him. I don't want to leave it on a Giuliani note, but that always stuck in my in my craw. Yeah, no, I, I went to we had there was one that they did, I think the, the, the first anniversary or the second it was in uh, Rock Center, though. I, I don't know if it was what it was, but I remember going in there and there were people talking and, and uh, you know, it, at the actual event. And there was some woman inside who was chattering. It's like, shut the fuck up and show some respect here. And I find that, you know, in the years that pass since this thing happened, there, there's some years that go by that I'm really, I guess, I don't want to say in the mood, but I feel ready and I want to share stuff. And I, there's other years that pass that I don't. And, you know, now here we are. I can't believe it's been 20. It's just, it's, it, it, I, I can, but it's, it's really just a mind boggling thing. And, uh, you know, it, it was, a. again, we, we talked a little bit about Giuliani. We didn't, we, I don't even think we mentioned Dick Cheney or Rumsfeld. We stayed out of all of the politics, which is, which is what I wanted. But my God, so many things uh, turned on that day. Uh, for the better for 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 New Yorkers and, and the galvanization that we talked about. But my God, for the worse for the country with with especially Iraq and the, and the trillion dollars and Bush just squandering uh, the goodwill of people when he really could have done something great with yeah. everybody's desire to help. And instead was like, oh, I'll just go shopping. Um, it was such such a missed opportunity. And we had four years of of this evil mob frontman money laundering asshole but i don't think that that should take away from what a terrible terrible president george w bush was and, and what a catastrophe you know he was also anyway that's that's neither here nor there um noel thank you so much for coming on and doing this i, I know it's it's you know it's like hey let's do a fun show let's talk about 9 11 it's like oh okay you know i know i'm gonna get emotional and and stuff. So I really appreciate you coming on and, and, and spending the, the hour with me and, you know, helping me reflect. So thank, really, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Greg. It's an honor. And, uh, you know, it's like, I think this may be one of the years where people are like, oh, I can't handle it, but you have to handle it. And I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to talk about it because it was such a massive event. It should always be remembered. You know, we should always do something to sort of like honor and process that trauma because it, you know, it, it makes the horror smaller and it makes the memories of, you know, of those we lost, you know, live in a more positive way, I think. So I think it's very important. I think it's important you did this show and I'm honored to be a part of it. Thanks so much. All right. Noel Kassler, everybody. Thanks for listening. 
The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signet Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail.